Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 43, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now they laid hands on him to seize him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as a as a robber? Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but they left the linen cloth. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. The late R.C. Sproul once said, The temptation to flee our Christian profession is strong when there is a real cost to our obedience, and if we trust in ourselves, we will fail. Let us ask the Lord for the strength and the grace to persevere under trial. So I want to welcome you back now as we restart our series titled uh, um, Following Jesus as we walk through the Gospel of Mark and as we Pick this series back up here in the first week of 2021. We find that we are in the 80th part of this sermon series. I had no idea I had 80 sermons in me. But you do realize that like, if you listened at a full-time job for two weeks, that's how long it'd take you to get through all that, right? Okay. Not to say I'm long-winded, but... um, uh, to say that we've covered a lot of ground in the last couple of years uh, would be an understatement. Uh, the truth is that we have talked a lot about what it means throughout this series, what it means to follow Jesus um, as we spend our time in the Gospel of Mark. And my encouragement for you is if you have missed any of the parts of this, if you are newer to uh, to First Baptist Church, if you have like been away for a while, that I would encourage you to go back and listen to all the parts that you have missed. Uh, you can do so on our SoundCloud page. They are all there, and most of the parts are also on, on YouTube. Back in the beginning, uh, we were just recording them and putting them on SoundCloud. Now that we started live streaming back in uh, March, we've been posting the videos, and so we've been going back and then actually like taking the audio, adding the video to them, and then uploading them. So our hope is very soon we'll have them all uploaded to YouTube. Uh, under a playlist where it's easy to find, because I don't know about you, sometimes stuff on YouTube is hard to find. But that way you can go to a playlist and find it and go start at one and go all the way through 80, which there'll be a few more parts still to go. Uh, but that being said, uh, the, the truth is the Gospel of Mark has been an important series because it's about discipleship. It's what it is to follow Jesus. And as we've gone through here, our theological understanding of who Christ is as the Son of God has grown 
And, and, and so has our understanding of what he's done here while on the earth. And, and we also have grown in our understanding of what he's calling us to do in light of that. Now, we find ourselves at this point in the Gospel of Mark at a place where we are nearing the climax of the story. This is the inevitable point that Mark has been rushing towards. In fact, we're at a place where everything is going to completely change. We're at a place where Jesus will be betrayed and arrested there in the garden. And as you well know, right, as we look at things like this, it's important that we keep in mind the context of what's been happening. What we need to realize is Mark started the story with Jesus as being a nobody from nowhere, emerging out of obscurity, proclaiming the time is now, the kingdom is here, repent and believe the gospel. And soon... He became a man that was the most popular person in all of Judea because he healed people and cast out demons and he was giving people a message of hope and he was, he was associating with and he was loving on people that everybody else rejected. He became the focal point of hope for the hopeless. Men and women, Jew and Gentile alike, came from all around to be near him and to be with him. They wanted to see the wondrous signs that he could do, and they wanted to hear his, his words that he had to say. And they wanted him to perform those miracles for them and take care of them. And as a result, large crowds followed him everywhere he went. All the time, houses were packed full. He stood on a boat at one point because the seashore was so full of people. Well, as time went on, it came time for him to take his last trip to Jerusalem for the, his final Passover. And if you remember, when he entered the city, he did so on the back of a donkey in specific fulfillment of prophecies about himself. Jesus rode into town as the king uh, to the city of David, and, and it was electric. People were in, were in anticipation. They were shouting, Hosanna, which literally means save now. They were hoping that he came to save them from Roman occupation. But Jesus did not come to take up David's throne immediately and lead a revolt against the Romans, as many expected. Instead, he came into the temple and he pronounced judgment on the temple and judgment on the nation of Israel for failing to do what God had called them to do, failing to be unfaithful, to be the light to the Gentiles. And the leaders came out then to challenge Jesus and his authority, but he quickly puts them in place, in, in their place. He... he uh, they tried to trip him up. They came to try to arrest him and make him say things that would get him in trouble, but he was just too much for them, spiritually and intellectually. And after these confrontations, Jesus leaves the Temple Mount for the very last time in his life, and he predicts the destruction of the city and the temple um, and the coming judgment of God against Israel, and he gives his followers very specific signs of those things to come and also his final coming. And after this tension Finally, the tension calms down for just a bit as they celebrate the Passover dinner. Um, and at this meal, Jesus institutes the Lord's table, a symbol that we're going to still celebrate today, a symbol of his suffering, but also a symbol of his covenant promises. Right, And then during this time, he reminded them, that he would soon be arrested and that he would soon be handed over to his enemies. And he tells them that one of them will betray him. And then he tells the rest of them that they would all betray him in their own ways, that they would fall away. But Peter then and the rest of the apostles were denying this, claiming that they would never under any circumstances in any way would they ever abandon Jesus. 
After dinner, they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, and there Jesus, who is fully God but also fully man, falls into agony anticipating what is about to come upon him, the wrath of God being poured out on him. And he prays to the Father that let this cup pass from him. But then he says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, ever faithful, stands up and moves forward. And after praying this three times, he finds his disciples sleeping once again. And he says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You see, everything in the story that's been leading up to this critical moment, everything has been moving to this point, right? This is where everything in the life and the ministry of Jesus has changed. This is the context of the passage. Jesus' life and mission were ascending towards him being the Messiah. He was the height of his popularity. He was untouchable in front of the crowds. And his disciples had felt invincible to be with him. All of that is about to change. That's the context. But there's one more thing to consider when it comes to this context. Something I think that we as Western Christians will overlook, especially as American Christians. Sometimes we're not as well-versed in the Old Testament as we should be, or we don't think about the Old Testament enough when it comes to these things. The other context we need to think about is the context of a garden. The fact that they are in a garden at this point in the story is not an accidental detail in history. It's not. God doesn't work in accidental details. The fact that Jesus, the second Adam, is in a garden at this point before God is not coincidental. This location and this event and the take that take place in this location are sovereignly arranged by God himself And they are written in such a way to draw our minds back to the garden, which is the beginning of the Bible. Because this is where it all begins. Everything that happens here is a result of what happened in the garden in the beginning, back to the garden of Eden. As you know, that God created the entire world and it was perfect. And the crowning achievement that God had created was mankind, and he placed him in an ideal setting, and he gave him everything he could ever need and everything he could ever want. And he gave him but one commandment, and that was to not eat of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And unlike Christ, Adam in his own way said, not as you will, but as I will the complete opposite of who Christ is. And he took the fruit and he ate it and he abandoned God, the God who loved him, for his own desires. Again, that's the complete contrast to who Jesus is. And as a result, sin and death and destruction entered the world and mankind was separated from God, unable to rescue himself. All of that took place in the garden. The first sin of mankind happened in this garden setting. And thousands of years later, the full expression of the heinousness of this sin was demonstrated there in the darkness of the garden in Gethsemane. And because of that, this text that we have before us has so much to teach us about sin, but it also has a lot to teach us about the one who came to save us from that sin.
So turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be again in verse 43, keeping these context things in mind. Verse 43 begins and says, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with a crowd, with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Just as Jesus was speaking about his betrayer being at hand, Mark says immediately he was still speaking and Judas came. And he didn't come by himself. Mark tells us they came with a crowd. I want you to understand when you survey the, all the Gospels and understand the words that they were used for crowd and the, the various meanings, when Mark says crowd, he's not talking about just a regular mob of angry people with torches and pitch, pitchforks. He's talking about religious officials who came out and armed temple police and soldiers. And I want you to know this is not a small crowd. This is not a little cadre of people. This is a group of men somewhere between 600 to 1,000 men. You need to realize this was a serious gathering of people that had come to arrest Jesus and put down whatever resistance that they encountered. They anticipated that there could be a fight. Right? And they came out in force to arrest him. They had found their opportunity, and they were not going to let it get away. And that was to lay hands on the one they'd been wanting to lay hands on for years. Now, there's something else in how Mark tells this story that I think is really telling that we need to, we need to think about. Notice that Mark develops his portrayal of Judas as he goes along. And the first thing that he says in verse 43 is he calls Judas one of the twelve. Have you ever thought about why he says that? In fact, I don't know if you realize, but the expression one of the twelve is used, I think, about twelve times, and eight times it's used of Judas. Right? Why would the gospel writers in Mark do that? I mean, because we know, right? We know who he is. If you follow the story and you've been following along, you know who he's, he's one of the twelve. So why does Mark make a point to mention that here? Why does he, he emphasize that? It's not an accidental detail. He's not just suddenly refreshing your memory, you know, just in case you didn't know, Judas was one of the twelve. He makes the point to mention this in order to drive home the point of the heinous nature of Judas's sin. Right? Judas was not just some random person. Judas was not just some guy that they knew casually. He was not even an enemy that was been that's been plaguing them. Judas was one of them, one of the 12. He was handpicked by Jesus. He was one of Jesus's closest friends. It's hard to get any closer to Jesus at the time than Judas. Mark points this out, that he was one of the twelve because he wants to make it clear the nature of Judas's sin. It's absolutely heinous and revolting. Right? One of Jesus' best friends sold him out. And if you have ever in your own life experienced the sting of betrayal, you know or have a sense of how vile that is, how hurtful that is. But I want you to understand that is the point of all of our sin. This is the thing I think we, we overlook. All of our sin is heinous. All of it is. All of our sin is vile. It's atrocious. That's why Christ is agonizing in the garden. Because he was about to take upon himself the heinous sins that we have committed. 
And on the cross, he was going to endure the awful and terrible wrath of God against our heinous sin. The fact that the spotless Lamb of God had to die is clear proof of how heinous our sins really are. You see, when we see Christ on the cross, we don't see our value before God. We, we, when we see Christ on the cross, we see how horrific our sin really is and what it took to clear us of that. Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, was sacrificed on the cross because that's what it took. That's what it took to overcome the stain of our sin. And this is a point I'm, I'm afraid that we often lose sight of as Christians in America. I don't think that we have it as hard as like our brothers in Kenya and Afghanistan. Their life is hard and it costs them something to be Christians. Here, even, I mean, it's starting to, but even now it's still pretty comfortable. There's, this is something our culture has lost sight of. This is something that many of us who, who call ourselves believers, even some pastors, lose sight of. And the result has been a misinterpreting of what Christ did on the cross. Somehow it's just simply a random act of love is all that it is. Right? That just God loved you and so this is an expression of that. It is that, but it's more than that. It's also a downplaying of the seriousness of sin. There's a tendency in our culture to take sin and just kind of whisk it away. But Mark helps us to see that our sin against God, right? like Judas' sin, is heinous. It is vile. That's why when those who come in contact with Christ and their hearts are changed, they begin to hate their sin because they begin to see how lovely Christ is. And because of that, they understand what he sacrificed for them. And suddenly in that context, you can see then how ugly your sin is. And so in verse 43, Mark calls Judas one of the twelve. But then notice he shifts in verse 44 and he calls him the betrayer. He said, now the betrayer had given them a sign. I want you to notice there's a transition here. He goes from being one of the twelve to the betrayer. That's how Mark describes him. Now, he could have just simply said, well, Judas gave them a sign. But he doesn't do that. He calls him a name, the betrayer. You see, betraying Jesus is not just what Judas did. It's who he was. I want, you to, I want you to hear that again, okay? Betraying Jesus is not something that Judas just did. It was who he was. Judas didn't betray, suddenly betray Jesus counter to Judas's good nature. Right? No, he betrayed him because that's who he was in here. He was a betrayer. That's his nature. Which again is the point. Many people think that we are, are sinners because we sin. No. We sin because that's who we are. We are sinners. You see, we our sin is not just what we do. It's who we are. It's, it's our nature. That's why Paul says that we were, before Christ, by nature, children of wrath. We don't sin because of some external force that happens upon us. We sin because it's who we are. It was in our old nature that we'd seek our own interest. It was in our old nature that we would seek to be our own sovereign. It was in our old nature that we would turn our backs on God. It was in our old nature that we'd gratify the sinfulness of our, our desires. 
It was who we were by our nature before Christ. That's why Christ had to die. That's also why we must be born again. We must have a new nature. That's why we had to be made new. It wasn't just about cleaning up what was dirty. It was not about just taking you know, something that, and, and, and pounding out the, the dents in it. It was recreating it. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. That's why we must be transformed by the Holy Spirit. That's why God must remove our hard hearts of stone and replace them with living hearts of flesh. Because it is our old nature to rebel against God and reject Him. Just like Judas, it was second, it was just who we were. Judas betrayed Christ because that's who he was, the betrayer. God didn't have to make him betray Christ. You realize that. God didn't make him do anything he didn't want to do. He, in his own nature, wanted to do that. You see, one of the arguments some people have against God being sovereign is they say, well, that means God makes people sin against their will so that he can send them to hell. That is not at all how it works. Not even close. God doesn't make sinners sin. That's what they do because that's just their nature and who they are. As a result of that, unless God actually intervenes and changes their hearts, they will rebel against God all the way to the end by their own will, choosing for themselves a hell that awaits them. People don't go to hell because it's against their will. They do so because they choose to go. The truth is sinners sin. What do they say? Haters are going to hate, right? Betrayers are going to betray. Liars are going to lie. Cheaters are going to cheat. Not because that's what they do. It's because of who they are. And that's what we see in Judas. And that's what we see in ourselves before Christ, before he came and transformed our hearts. Mark also says in verse 44, Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, This is the one, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. I want you to realize is that, that Judas had led this group who were seeking to arrest Jesus. He led them to him at nighttime. And what we need to realize is we're talking about a nighttime where they don't have street lamps and street lights, right? In fact, they don't have the light pollution we have even in this little town right here. There's not an ambient glow of lights, right? And it was hard to tell people apart at nighttime, even on a moonlit night, but especially under the shade of olive trees in a garden. It would be hard to recognize people in the dark, not to mention they lived in a time when nobody had pictures, Right? which is something we take for granted, right? We, don't, we never think about the fact that unless you actually met somebody, you don't know what they look like. You would never know them, even if you bumped into them. The truth is that Judas couldn't take out his cell phone and say, hey, here he is, this is the guy they're looking for. Right? And the fact is, many of the people that were, were there probably had not actually been up close and personal with him to recognize his features. And this is all made worse by the fact that it's crowded there during Passover, thousands of people are camping on the Mount of Olives. Why? Because there's pilgrims from all around who have come to stay 
near the city of Jerusalem for the Passover. And so it would have been easy for them to overlook the person they're hunting for in that context. And so finding Jesus in the dark would have been a huge challenge for them. And so Judas comes up with this plan. And basically, he said, here's what I'm going to do. Once I find him, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over and I'm going to kiss him. And when you see me kiss him, you know that that's the guy. Keep your eyes on me. Once I kiss somebody, you know that that is the man. Arrest him quickly. Now, what we need to realize is that this helps us to see that Judas' sin, this is not some spur of the moment, the devil made me do it kind of thing. This is not some you know, reaction to a momentary fleeting temptation. He's not reacting to an emotion here. He is not reacting to a fleeting desire. His sin here is premeditated and deliberate. He knows what he wants to do. And he's had plenty of time to think about it. And he has to make a plan in order to accomplish his sin. So he knows. He knows full well what he's doing. And he knows he's not leading these guys to just have a meet and greet. He knows they're there to arrest him, hence the crowd with the weapons. He knows they're going to take him by force and arrest him. You see, oftentimes we let ourselves get fooled into thinking that our sin is something that's awful, that we really don't want to do, but we just accidentally kind of stumble into it. I know that we can fool ourselves thinking that all the time. Our culture and many people in the church will even refuse to say the word sin because they, don't, they want to soften what that means. What they say is they call our transgressions mistakes, as if we mistakenly sinned, as it was just kind of like, I didn't know what I was doing. Or a lapse in judgment, I've heard people call it that. Right, they do it because they want, to, they want to soften the implication of what sin is and what it means for us. But this is just simply not true. Our sins are not just mistakes. There might be some that are that way, but the vast majority of them aren't. Our sins are not just momentary misjudgments. Our sins are often very intentional and very deliberate acts. We will often do these things because we want to do them. That's why people sin, by the way. You don't sin because... Something in you makes you. You do it because you want to do it. We don't sin by accident. They happen because we make choices that lead us to those sins. And oftentimes, it's more than one choice. You have to make multiple choices to get to that result. The truth is, in many cases, our sin is very brazen. We do it because we want to. We go out of our way to sin. Don't believe me? Recently, a pastor of a megachurch in New York recently was fired for moral failure. I, I hate that expression, especially when it comes out of churches. Moral failure. That's how churches word things when they must soften the blow, by the way. See, it makes it sound like this guy just kind of slipped up one day. You know, like one day he was good, and then the next day he fell into temptation, and then he morally failed. No. This man knew the Bible. 
This man knew full well what sin was and probably, more than likely, had talked about the very sins that he was about to commit. But he chose to dress up fashionably and look like a supermodel and to wear provocative clothes in his time off to show off his physique and his body. And then one day he meets a woman that he was attracted to and he pursues her and he tells her, he even tells her he was married. He says that he's married. He lets her know straight up front, I'm married. So we got a secret to keep. But he wouldn't tell her what he did for a living because that might have been a barrier for her because she's Muslim. As this pastor carried out an illicit relationship with this woman for months, by the way, all the while leading his church, preaching every Sunday and pretending to be an example of virtue, this man didn't fall into sin. I want you to hear me. He didn't fall into sin by accidentally stumbling off the side of the road. He pursued his sin. In fact, he overcame obstacles to engage in this sin. He cheated on his wife, and that took time and effort and deliberate planning and execution. He pursued the sin that he wanted. And before we are too quick to judge this man, this is why celebrity pastors are dangerous, by the way. Before we judge him, we oftentimes do the same thing. We pretend we don't want to sin, but there's something in us that's drawing us there. That's why people flirt with people. They want to act like it's innocent, but it's still not. That's why people justify their gossip saying, well, well, I'm just letting people know what's going on, or we're just talking about prayer requests. You know you're still gossiping. That's why people justify their unforgiveness. Somehow, some way, you know, that what God asks of everybody else is good for everybody else except me. Somehow, some way, what, what, you know, I just want to defend this sin. We want to say, well, it's just something I need to do, but it's still a sin to walk in unforgiveness. That's why people secretly try to manipulate situations and manipulate people to get the outcomes that they want in different circumstances instead of doing what they said they're doing is trusting God to work things out. And we know, we all know people in our families and, our, and, and around us, even in this community, who are always have this face of like, oh, I don't care, but behind the scenes they're trying to get what they want and you know, set people up. And The reality is, is there's lots of different ways that we all pursue willingly and brazenly our, our sin. Oftentimes we sin against God and other people, and it is brazen. We will pretend like we fall into it, Right, But we'll pretend like we didn't mean for it to happen, but we'll pursue it even when it's challenging for us to pursue it. Sin's a very deadly thing. Verse 45, it says, And then he came and he went up to him once again and said, Rabbi, once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him and he laid hands on him and seized him. Not only did Judas contrive a plan to identify Jesus, but he executed it in the most deceitful way. He pretended to still be Jesus' friend. He called him rabbi, a term of respect and endearment. And he kissed him, a customary greeting between friends. This was a horrific act of betrayal. In fact, the Gospel of Luke 
Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? You might as well just slap him in the face. Judas blatantly betrayed Christ in the garden, just as Adam blatantly betrayed God in the garden. What we need to understand is ultimately our sin is just that, a betrayal of the God who loves us. The God who loves us, the God who created us, the God who pours out his blessings on us day after day after day after day. You got up this morning because God blessed you. You're breathing right now because God blessed you. You got money in the bank because God blessed you. There's food in the pantry because God blessed you. God owes you nothing but his wrath and his judgment, but he blesses you time and time and time and time again. And our sin is a betrayal of that God. Our sin is a rebellion against him. In fact, we, before we were in Christ, we would have gladly killed God if we could have. Ever notice why atheists hate God so much? They hate somebody that they know doesn't exist, right? Why? Because we love our sin more than we love God, right? I mean, we wanted the gift that God can give. We just don't want the giver of the gift, We want the gift of life and material things and health and love and pleasure, but we don't want the giver of the gifts. In fact, there are times that many people wish that he didn't even exist. I know that I did. That was who I was for years to the point that I denied his existence. I was glad to breathe his air. I was was happy to eat the food that he was providing. I was glad to enjoy the creation that he had given and made by his sovereign hand, but I was hardened in my hatred for him. I gladly suppressed the truth in my unrighteousness, as Romans tells us. I betrayed the God that loved me at every opportunity I could. All sin at its root is a betrayal of God. It is taking from God what is good and corrupting it for our desires. It's what the world has done with sex. It's what the world has done with marriage. What the world has done with gender. What the world has done with the unborn. I know I mentioned this last week, but do you realize there was mass celebrations across the country of Argentina that women were now allowed to murder their babies in the womb that they couldn't before. Like, nobody even cared about COVID-19. Everybody huddled together at that point, right? They were celebrating a righteous cause, the right to kill babies. All sin's betrayal of God is taking what is good is corrupting it. It's taking the gifts and denying him as the giver of the gift. And really, ultimately, it is trying to steal the glory that is rightfully his. Judas's betrayal of Christ gives us a glimpse of the truth of our own sin. But look at verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. The Gospel of John tells us this is Peter who did this. And that in short, what he was doing, he was trying to basically kill this guy and hit him in the head and missed, right? And it slid off and hit this guy in the ear and cut his ear off. Um, The Gospel of John also tells us that that Jesus told Peter to put his sword away, right? And and really the the truth that that Jesus was communicating is his his kingdom is not going to be spread through the strength of arms. And I, I think that sometimes I think we even forget that. 
The gospel gets spread by the gospel, not because we're strong and not because we're going to force it down people's throats, not because we're going to make a government that's going to be you know, doing exactly what God wants it to do. Strength of arms can't stop the gospel. Strength of arms can't further the gospel. The gospel itself is the power of God to salvation, and nothing can stop the word of God. So basically, Peter's being told, put your arms away, and Luke's gospel uh, tells us that Jesus actually took the time to heal the man that, that Peter had wounded. And there's a whole lot to talk about there, but that's a whole different sermon topic to talk about. Just suffice it to say, Jesus puts an end to this little bit of resistance his disciples were offering up, probably saving their lives. You to remember, there's like 600 men who came out to arrest Jesus. If, if he turned into blood, it was not gonna, they were not going to last very long. Verse 48 says, Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Now once things had settled down, Jesus addresses this crowd who comes to confront him, and he confronts them about the manner in which they came to arrest him. And, and the word that he uses here that, about a robber that gets translated as robber actually has a wider range of meaning in the Greek. It actually could also mean a revolutionary or insurgent, which actually better fits the context here because Jesus obviously was not considered a thief or a robber, but he was certainly seen as a political threat. Jesus was saying that, that he, you know, you've come out here against me like I'm some revolutionary trying to overthrow the Roman government. I mean, you, had, you brought 600 of you out here in the darkness. Why now was the point? Why this moment? Why come out in the nighttime in the darkness? Why away from the eyes of the crowd? You had every opportunity to grab a hold of me during the day. I was with you several days. You saw me. You knew that I was there. I was in the temple teaching and arguing with a leadership Right there in front of you, you could have snatched me up at any time. But now, you come out here in the darkness. See, Jesus was exposing their cowardice. They came out to do in the darkness and in the secret what they were afraid to do in the light, which is exactly, brothers and sisters, how our sin works. Sin loves the darkness. It loves the secret. It loves the little hiding places in our hearts that we pack away and pretend aren't there. And our sin has a tendency to want to draw us back into the shadows. It causes us to hide from the light. It reminds us again of Adam in the garden. When he sinned, what did he do? He hid. Think about it. That's his instinct to hide, which is really weird, right? Who's he hiding from? God. There's something about our sin that draws us into the darkness. It's the nature of sin. In fact, John chapter 3, Jesus tells us, um, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works be exposed. These men came in the, under the cover of darkness away from the crowd because they were cowards and they operated in secret because they knew they were wrong. They knew it. 
Notice that in the, all the gospel accounts, they arrest him and they don't charge him. They just arrest him. They know, right, that what they're doing is wrong. They could have arrested him at any point saying, you're citing an insurrection, we're taking you away. You're threatening our way of life, we're taking you away. They didn't do that. This is what reminds us, by the way, what we hate about politics nowadays. What's the first thing that happens when, when they have a closed-door meeting, they make an announcement? We know something dirty happened. We know it. We can't prove it, but we know, right? Oh, just vote on this bill. You don't have to read it. Just, just vote on it. We have to vote on it just so we can understand what's inside of it, right? Suddenly, this candidate's acting a certain way. I'm never going to change my mind. And the next thing you know, they go in behind a room and come out. I've changed my mind. It stinks. The truth is, that's what our sin is like. By the way, that's why we need fellow believers in our lives. That's why the whole idea of a Lone Ranger Christian is stupid. right? You can't do this by yourself. You can't live objectively above the line by yourself. We need a church family that helps us to, to see who we really are. That's why we need people to hold us accountable. That's why we need a church family in our lives to help us to stay out of the shadows and to walk in the light of the truth. That's why I need to be around each other face to face. I'm going to tell you during this isolation, right? During this isolation, it gives us way too much room to be by ourselves, too much opportunity to walk in the darkness, all the while pretending on camera that we're walking in the light. Right? I don't know if you realize it, but one of the first things, I want you, one of the first things that happened during this quarantine. Pornhub, which is one of the largest porn purveyors in all of the world, made its services free for the first month of the quarantine. We just want to help, said the drug addict. I mean, the drug, the drug dealer, right? They knew, right? People are going to have plenty of alone time by themselves. No one's going to be there watching them. This is why we need each other. This is why we need accountability. This is why we need to be around brothers and sisters in Christ. So Judas' betrayal of Christ in the garden tells us a lot about the nature of our sin. But so does the sin of the other apostles, by the way. You see, Judas is not only the guilty one. He's not the only one who's guilty. The other 11 betray Christ in their own way. Notice after Jesus is arrested, it says, And they all left him and fled. Just let that part of the verse sink into your hearts. They all left him and fled. They all did. Jesus' prediction about Judas came true, but so did his prediction about the others abandoning him at the hour of his greatest need. They all left him and fled. In that moment... In a moment when they thought, right, the moment before they thought that he was the Messiah, he was going to be king, right, and they were going to be with him and never give up on him. Think about this, right? They thought that they were going to be his, his ruling class, right, and they, were, and they were with him for three and a half years. They witnessed him calmed two storms supernaturally by his word. They saw him feed thousands of people twice with a couple of fish and a, a few pieces of flatbread. 
They even watched him raise a little girl from the dead. They even saw recently Lazarus come out of the tomb after four days of being dead. He was the greatest person they'd even heard about. And they thought they were willing to walk with him through the fires of hell. But in a moment, in an instant, they all fled him and left We cannot overthink this. This is something we really need to meditate on. This was the pattern over and over again during the intertestamental period. A charismatic leader would rise up and everybody would rally to the cause thinking he's the Messiah. And they'd be excited and say, we'll go with you to the end. And then they'd be arrested and killed and everybody would scatter. This is the fickle pattern of everyone around them. You see what they proved is that these men were no different than anybody else. This is something I think would be good for us to know in the core of our hearts. They're no different than anyone else. There's nothing special about them. We tend to look at them as great men of faith. Something special, but they're not. They're just like the rest of us. They prove to be unfaithful like everyone else in the world is. They deserted Christ, the Christ that loved them. When, he, when, he sudden, when suddenly Jesus was arrested, as, as he told them would happen, all of, their un, all of their faithfulness and all of their promises and all the bravery they could muster, everybody was out the window. They deserted the God that loved them, which again is what sin is. It's a desertion of the God that we love and the God that loves us. That's why we sang the song this morning, right? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Sin beckons us to abandon God. Sin calls us to leave Him to follow our desires. Our sin urges us to walk away from our worship of Him and come to worship all manner of other things. And we would abandon Him. We would abandon Him like the apostles did were it not for Christ, who is the one who keeps us. This is why Paul says, I have nothing to boast about but Christ crucified. I have nothing in me to boast about. Because the other part of the verse goes like this. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. You have to seal it. I understand your faithfulness is not because of you. Your faithfulness is because of him who is faithful, who resides in you. If it were not for him, you would abandon him at every turn. And even now in my own life, At times, I would attempt to abandon him. Even you, you would would succumb to temptation as you fall into sin. Sometimes, even for extended periods of time, you experience this draw to pull away from him. If it were not for Christ, you, if, if, if not for Christ rescuing you and keeping you, you would completely fall away just like the apostles did. If they couldn't keep themselves from falling, and they were actually like there with him and touched him and saw him and loved him, 
If they abandon Christ at the first opportunity, how much more would you fail? If Christ himself who keeps us, if he were to let us go, we'd have no hope. But it's him who keeps us. It is him who takes hold of us. That's why the promise of Christ in John chapter 10, verse 28 is so important to us. Jesus said, I, have given, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. It is because of his grip on our lives that keeps us. It is not our faithfulness to keep us safe. It is the faithfulness of Christ. And every day as we sin, we live with the evidence that it is not, if it were not for him, if it were not for him, we would abandon him. Which is what we need to keep in mind. Our sin is an attempt to abandon God, and it proves three things. It proves, number one, that we are in need of ongoing grace. We continually need the grace of God. It's not in your notes. You can actually write this extra one down. It's just a little bonus, right? And it proves that we have an ongoing need for the grace of God every day, every day, every day. What you need today is grace. What you need tomorrow is more grace. What you need the rest of your life is more grace, oceans of grace. The second thing that it proves, it proves our inability to do anything to contribute to our salvation. We can't do it. Can't do it. We have nothing in us that will allow us to be saved by ourselves. We don't even have anything we can add to it. Nothing. And third, it proves that those who are in Christ are secure because of who Christ is. This is why when people talk about that there is no such thing as a security of a believer, I just don't understand. How would you even have hope? Because I'm going to tell you, I feel good today, but like five minutes from now, I'm not going to feel good because I know I'm in trouble. The truth is this, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If it was within your ability to lose it, you would lose it. Absolutely. It's just who you are. Your faithfulness, if it depended upon you, you would have long since abandoned God, just like the apostles did. They left him and fled. And we would do the same thing. Praise the Lord that salvation is of him. Now, verse 51, Mark records a detail about some obscure young man. And many people have theories about who this young man is, but the Bible doesn't really fully tell us who he is. Um, but there's one theory I find rather convincing, and that this young man is actually Mark himself. And, and the reason why this is convincing is oftentimes the gospel writers would refer to themselves, but not, not by name. And they would also make a point to highlight the fact that they're not the hero of the story. And he is definitely saying that this guy's not the hero. Right? Whatever it is, Mark does this at the end of the episode to make a point. In verse 51, he says, And a young man following him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So here's the picture, okay? I just, it, there's a lot going on here. And it's very tense and a chaotic scene. Jesus, they come out to arrest him. They grab a hold of Jesus, Right? There's this confrontation. Peter tries to cut somebody's ear off. Jesus heals the ear. There's a conversation back and forth. They seize Jesus and lead him off. Everybody runs. But somehow, someway, somebody grabs a hold of this young man by the garment. And what does he do? He runs away 
by slipping out of his clothes and getting naked. And as bad as that might seem to us, as embarrassing as that might seem to us, it was worse in that culture, way worse. Because in that culture, to have your nakedness exposed to the public was a sign of terrible, terrible shame. You wanted to shame somebody to the point of humiliation, then beat them up and steal their clothes and make them walk naked. That, I mean, that, in fact, that's why Jesus, when he was on the cross, we always see him with a little cloth on. It was not like that. He was naked because it was a sign of humiliation. Right. So actually, wiggling out of your clothes and running away naked, you know, to be so desperate to do that was, was to be willing to embrace a shame rather than face whatever was on the other side of that. Many people I know would actually rather die than be shamed that way. But this young man was willing to choose shame over faithfulness. And he did that in the garden. Again, which, right, who else, by the way, chose shame over faithfulness in a garden? Adam himself. Adam chose his sin and exposed his nakedness or his shame, which is what our sin does, right? It exposes us. It reveals for us who we really are. It exposes our shame. It reveals for us, right? Not what we think of ourselves, but who we really are. It reveals the depths of our depravity. We are prone to embrace our shameful sin, rather than remain faithful to God if it were not for Christ. That's why Adam's sin required that God kill an animal to cover up his nakedness. That's not just an act to just kind of make him warm. It's a visual symbol of something. That's why God the Father had to kill his son to cover up our shame by clothing us in his righteousness. You see, what the second episode in the garden teaches us is that we are helpless to do anything on our own about our sin. Completely, totally helpless to do anything. Our sin is heinous. Our sin is not just what we do, but who we are. It is brazen. It's a betrayal of God. It loves the darkness. It is a desertion of the God who loves us and exposes our shame. And left to our own devices, left to choose for ourselves, we would continue to choose our sin over God. We would choose to abandon Him and betray Him in every turn if it were not for the love and the grace of Christ. We would continue to be just like what is described in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is a beautiful, clear expression of what's taking place in the garden here. It says, beginning verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And Paul goes on to say, 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to the, a debased mind to do what they ought, what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, m- maliciousness. They were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That is who we are if God just leaves us to our own devices. That's who we are if we're just left alone to find somehow choose God by our own power. That is, that is who we are if salvation is not the work of a sovereign God. We, just like the apostles, would, would have left Christ alone in the dark and betrayed and abandoned him. But though we may be unfaithful, though we may be unfaithful, our Christ, our Savior, is not. Notice it says in verse 49, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Moments before Jesus had said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. I want you to realize it was the will of the Father that Christ was there alone in the dark. That was the plan, that was his will. I want you to realize that's exactly what it what it took. The will of the Father had been decreed in eternity past, and that Christ would be the one to stand alone in the dark and put an end to the power of the enemy. And that was foretold all the way back again in the garden, in the beginning, when God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and eat dust, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. But here's the critical part. Here's the promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the garden, in the beginning, was the promise of the one who would come, who would deal the death blow to the ancient serpent, who would undo all the work that was done in the garden before. There Christ stood alone by the will of his father, And by the plan decreed in eternity past, thousands of years later in the garden stood a Savior who was the second Adam. He is our federal head, our representative before God. And where the first Adam was unfaithful, the second Adam was completely faithful. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. Where the first Adam brought death, the second Adam brings life. Just read, chapter, read Romans. It was ordained by God that Christ would be there in the garden. And it was ordained by God that he would be left alone. Because it was ordained by God that, um, that Christ would, would be the one to redeem us alone. Christ stood alone because he alone could do what was required to set us free. Only he could live the perfect life that we couldn't live. Do you understand that? There was a requirement for you to live a perfect life and you failed. He fulfilled the law 
that you failed to fulfill. You were supposed to fulfill the law. You failed. He fulfilled the covenant on your behalf. You failed. Only He could give you the righteousness that you need to cover your nakedness so you could stand before God. Only He could pay the penalty of your sin, the the penalty that you deserve. Only He could satisfy the full wrath of a holy, righteous, and just God so that you could go free. That is why He had to be alone. And that is why salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because He did it all alone with none of our contributions to it. And as we look at who he is, and as we look at the nature of our sin, we clearly understand then our hope of salvation rests not in our ability to make God love us or our ability to be faithless. It rests in the truth that Christ our Savior is faithful even when we are not faithful. Brothers and sisters, we're reminded all the time of how unfaithful we are. Our hope isn't becoming more faithful. Our hope is in the one who is faithful. That's what we see here. Christ remains faithful in spite of the apostles' unfaithfulness. Christ willingly allowed himself to be arrested and ultimately crucified for those who abandoned him. For those who who proved that they were unworthy of his love and his grace. This is the picture of the gospel that God in His grace does for us what we're powerless to do for ourselves. Christ stands alone in the dark for those who left Him. What a scandalous truth this is. And it reminds us of Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? Us! For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, heinous and hateful and betraying, Christ died for us. In the garden we see who we really are and the nature of our sin, but we also see who Christ really is and the nature of his grace. Christ stood alone in the darkness because he is the light in the darkness. And he is all the hope that we could ever have. But there's one last thing I want you to see about this episode about Christ. It's recorded in the Gospel of John, and I'll read it very quickly. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 4, it reads, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, and he said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. That it would fulfill the word that was spoken of those whom you gave me. I have I have lost not one. When Jesus said the phrase, I am he, he's using the expression that he'd used before when he was talking about how he had encountered Abraham in the past. And they were like, you're crazy. You're a young man. How could you possibly have encountered Abraham? And he said, because before Abraham was, I am. Not just I am he, I am. Ego, 
I me, which is I am the existent one. I am Yahweh in the flesh, taking him all the way back to the burning bush in an exodus. This is the same expression that he uses here. Right? They ask, who are you looking for? And he says, ego, I me, I am. And what happens? At that declaration, all 600 men fall to the ground. And the Greek that's used to express them falling is not like they tripped and fell. It was they were forced to the ground by the power of his word. He then asked them again. By the way, you know what that means, right? He's God in the flesh. And then they asked him, he asked them again, who have you sought? And they repeated, Jesus of Nazareth, and he told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. What we see in the garden is that Christ, even though he is fully man, he's still fully God, and he's completely in control. Because he, our Savior, is sovereign. Everything that happens is by his design and by his consent and by his command. This is the point in time it was appointed for him to be arrested by his own will. No one arrested him against his will. Which means in spite of their unfaithfulness, Christ saved the apostles from the hands of his enemies and he willingly allowed himself to be arrested, setting into motion all the events that would lead up to his torture and his death. Christ is the sovereign reigning king who willingly stood alone in the garden to rescue those who would betray him and abandon him at the first chance. What amazing grace. I don't think John Newton adequately summed up how amazing God's grace is. Now with all of that, then what do we do with that? How do we live in light of this truth? Well, the first one is, if you're not someone who has already done so, I call you today to repent and believe the gospel. If you've not given your life to Christ, if you have not made him the Lord of your life, I'm calling you today to turn to him in faith, repent and believe the gospel. He came into the world to give you a righteousness that you couldn't earn. He came into the world to die to pay the penalty that you couldn't pay And he rose from the grave, proving that if you trust in him, he will not fail you. All you're required to do is do what Jesus said. Repent, turn away from your old life and your old sin and your self-righteousness, and turn to him in faith and hold on to him. Now, secondly, if you're a believer, probably one one of the best pieces of advice I've ever heard in my life is one of the pieces of advice that you need to take to heart is preach the gospel to yourself. You need to hear it every day. If you're like me, you have a tendency to hide in the darkness, to abandon Christ in your thoughts, to betray him for the sins that are always trying to draw you away. And there are times in your life that you can feel like it's hopeless. You can even question, do I even have a relationship with God? Because look at me. I just keep making a mess of things. I'm unable to remain faithful. You see how that you continually fall down. It's easy to fall in this trap that somehow I need to get to work. I need to do better. I need to try harder. I need to work harder. Right? You can feel like if you don't get your act together, God's going to leave you behind and let you go. You must preach the gospel to yourself and remind yourself that's not even how it is. It never will be. You're saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And that's 
always true. It is never about what you can do for God. It is never, hear me, church family, if there's anything you learn from me today, it is never about anything that you can do for God. It's about what God has already done for you. Christ is the one who did it all to save you. And Christ is the one who continues to do it all to keep you saved. He's the one who makes intercession on your behalf. You're not saved by your ability to make God love you. You don't stay saved because you never, ever sin again. The gospel is God has done it all. Trust in that. And when you fall on your face and you make a mess of things, when you fall into deep, egregious sins as we are prone to do, when you abandon the Christ momentarily for some pleasure, the answer is not to run away from God, but the answer is to repent and turn to Him and continue to do what you did before. Believe in the promises that He has made. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. And then third, I would say, as John Owen says, be killing sin or it be killing you. The truth is we need to take sin seriously. And we need to take seriously the fact that we need to make war on the sin in our lives. Now, what I'm saying here is not a contradiction to what I just said. Hear me. We ought to pursue holiness. We ought to seek to put to death the sin that plagues us, not to save us, but so that we can, so that we can have closer, intimate fellowship with the one who has saved us. You in your own life and your walk with God can have deeper intimacy with God as you pursue holiness. You don't pursue holiness so that God would love you more. You pursue holiness so that you can be closer to the one who loved you so much to save you in spite of you. You were saved from the penalty of sin. And the Holy Spirit is saving you from the power of sin. And you, in this life, have the ability to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit to grow in holiness. Be putting to death the sins that plague you and draw you away from the Lord who gives you so much joy. And then finally, we need to follow where Christ leads. Jesus stood in the darkness for us. He rescued us. Right? He's also reshaping us and strengthening us. We ought to go where he leads us to join the mission that he has called us to be on. It is the new year, by the way. Now's a good time to renew your commitment to pursue the direction that God is leading you in your, in your life. What is God calling you individually to do? He's calling us all into the mission, by the way. We are all called to be a part of the work that he's doing. But how is God individually calling you? Get alone with him. Pray. Seek his face and his will for your life. Ask the questions of him and he will guide you. Maybe it's to minister to the neighbors in your community. Maybe it's to share the gospel with your family members. Maybe it's for you to get involved and shine the light of Christ in the community through acts of love and service. Maybe God's calling you to pack up and move to a different country and go share the gospel. I don't know what God's planned for you, and I don't want to pretend like I would know what he can do with any of you because he can do whatever he wants. What I'm saying is, are you willing to sit back and say, Lord, you tell me and I'll do whatever it is Make this the year, 2021, that you say, yes, Lord. Even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, because he stood in alone in the darkness for you.
understand. He was arrested and tortured and he died for you individually. Will you not live for him? You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.